As I was uh, preparing uh, uh, for this, uh, this morning's sermon and going through the text and where Paul talks about uh, thanking the Thessalonians and just praising God for their amazing belief and then contrasting it with the rejection of so many of the Jews of their own Messiah, I was kind of taken back to my childhood growing up in Columbia back in the 1960s as I would go and visit different people's houses, different friends' uh, homes, and many of them had bookshelves, some of them even had some small libraries, and almost in every case, in every house, uh, there would sit upon the bookcase or in the library uh, the, uh, a six-volume set of red books. And I guess that's why I remember them, because they always shone out being read. And it was Winston Churchill's Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, description, history, of World War II. Now, if you want to know what happened in World War II, ask the guy that won it, Right. So everybody had this volume. We have this volume. It's an excellent read. I highly recommend it. But the reason why that kind of kept coming into mind is the last volume of that series is entitled Triumph and Tragedy, where he describes the end of the war, the eventual victory, and the aftermath of the war, and including the encroaches of Soviet Union and uh, many of the horrors that were uncovered uh, and that sort of thing. So I think that's what we have today as we look at the triumph of the uh, Thessalonians' belief and the tragedy, the just tragedy, that the Jews rejected their own Messiah. They did not listen to God's very word, although they had all the benefits and all the, uh, all the uh, opportunity to be able to do so. So as we look at the first Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, you know, my, my hope is that we're going to understand that one group's experience is triumph of belief while the other, the tragedy of unbelief, and that we'll understand the exact same thing is happening today, and that we're at war, and that we will be those who triumph, and we need to pray for and reach out to those who could be experiencing a tragedy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you right now. And we thank you, God, that what we are going to read today was inspired by the Holy Spirit through the mind, the heart, the pen of the Apostle Paul. Lord, as we as we learn more and more about what was going on with the Thessalonians in the Thessalonian church around 50 A.D., God, uh, it just cheers us to think we will be in heaven with some of these very same people. Some of the same people that read Paul's letter for the first time were also adopted into the family of God and have eternal salvation. And they've been waiting 2,000 years for us to get there. And that, that encourages us. That makes us want to just sing of the great triumph that we have in Jesus Christ. But Lord, our heart breaks also for those who reject Jesus Christ, the, who experience the tragedy of unbelief, both in this day and also on our own. So I pray, God, with a, both a joyful but also with a sober spirit, that we would look at the word of God today and understand the triumph and the tragedy of belief and unbelief. Please bless, bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Uh, and of course, our, the, our, our series is called Living in the Light of His Return, which we will be, uh, Lord willing, be in that series probably right up until the end of spring as we go through First and Second Thessalonians. And that's really the principle that we need to keep before us at all times. He is coming back. He is coming back. 
And each of us will give an account of how we live the life and how we use the resources that he gave us and, uh, and the blessings that he's provided for us. And we want to be able to do that with joy. And your elders want to be able to do that with joy. So let's look here, first of all, at the triumph of uh, belief in verses 13 through 14. You might find your home group helps insert a little bit helpful. It's not a complicated outline. We've got two whole points here uh, this morning. That don't mean it's going to be short. Uh, but just two points here, but you can take a look at that. You'll also find uh, some questions that might help you uh, further understand uh, some, what it was taught this morning on the back of that. But first of all, we see here the triumph of uh, belief in verses 13 through 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. God says, Paul writes, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really was, or really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So again, Paul starts off here with this, uh, for this reason, which goes back to a uh, uh, verse 12, remember Paul has been defending his, uh, his ministry among the Thessalonians. Uh, and uh, in verse 12, he says, so that you encouraging them and challenging them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. And then he, uh, as he did in the beginning of the letter, he breaks into thanks again. He says, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, uh, which you heard from us. So this kind of, again, goes back to the preceding paragraph. And Paul just can't seem to stop mentioning the gospel of God. He's mentioned it in verse 2, verse 8, verse 9. Uh, and, uh, and now he talks about it again. But he's, just, he's always telling people about the gospel, the gospel of God. Uh, and what he's thanking them for is uh, the report. We're going to look at this uh, in, in the upcoming Sundays. But the report that's come back from Timothy saying the Thessalonians, despite the fact that persecution has gotten worse, and despite the fact that we were only there for a few weeks to plant that church, they are holding true to the faith. They are not turning their back on Jesus Christ. They have accepted that word and the Holy Spirit has given them strength. Indeed, they are flourishing and they are even growing in their numbers despite all the opposition. It's really humbling, isn't it? I mean, the church in America seems to be struggling so much without opposition and yet here these folks are being opposed and uh, being ostracized, perhaps kicked out of families, not allowed to go to the marketplace, whatever it might be. And they're really struggling with this. And yet they're struggling. They're prevailing. They are in triumph. They're in a great war, but they are triumphing through that war. So he just wants to give thanks. He wants to give thanks as he's, uh, again, he started off this letter saying, and what is he thankful for? That they received the word and he accepted the gospels being supernaturally sent. Uh, and therefore, they believe what it means. They understood that this was not just Paul's opinion. He is not just peddling ideas. He's not trying to start a new cult and just another worship uh, service uh, in the Roman Empire there. that They actually received it as the word from this one God that rules over all. So uh, there's a couple of aspects here. It was the word of God, but it was communicated through the apostles. He said they heard it from us. That is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I think... Uh, Rick Phillips is a great summary of, of, of how we get our Bible. Uh, the 66 books of the Bible were written down by real men with all their limitations and peculiarities. The Bible did not fall down from heaven, completely written, leather bound with maps and a concordance appended. 
Instead, the Bible came together through a process that took place over a thousand years. You know, so that's perfectly fine for us to understand that this is the Word of God written through the agency of men. That's what God always does. He's always working through flawed men, flawed women to build His kingdom. That's his preferred manner of doing that. So you have here the, the both sides of evangelism. You have God's word is taught, uh, but it's by God's people. He could have used angels. We actually think that would have been a good idea. <laughs> he could have used visions. But what did he use? He used human conversation, human teaching, human preaching based upon the word of God. And an entire church was born in Thessalonica, because they accepted it. That idea of acceptance is inward welcome of the message. It's a transference from the mind to the heart. They didn't just uh, hear truth. They owned that truth. It was theirs. They went from pagan to Christian, one who is in Christ. You know, so many people will intellectually assent to Christianity. They even claim the title of Christianity, but it's, it never affects them here. It doesn't affect their lifestyle doesn't make a difference. That's really the sign of a true Christian. They hear the word. The word is accepted intellectually, but it, but it transforms their heart. Why? Because that's the residing place of the Holy Spirit. He applies that very same word to their heart. He explains it to them. He convicts them. He encourages them uh, with it. And it was not, of course, the, the word of man. All the other itinerant sellers of religion, it was the word of man. But he, again, is defending his apostleship. This is what actually the word of God. How does this work? Well, Peter uh, kind of explains to us in 2 Peter 1, this is, it's helpful for understanding where this word comes from. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what, Paul, what Peter is saying here is that the Bible is not a collection of human thoughts and ideas, and it did not originate with the will of men. Matter of fact, many of the people who wrote it died because of it. I mean, if you were going to try to schnooker a bunch of people with some kind of made, new made-up religion or philosophy, uh, you probably wouldn't be willing to die for a lie. You wouldn't be able to, willing to die for your business. And yet they died for that because it really was the word of God, as Paul spoke, spoke here. He goes on to say this happened because men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the Galatians, a, a troubled church that was, uh, was starting to buy into the heresy that you, had, you could be a Christian, but you had to become a Jew first to, to become a real Christian. Paul says to the Galatians, for you would have, what I would have you know, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, y'all, that needs to give you some confidence, because as you're sharing the gospel, you know, we're getting into holiday season right now, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, where you're around crazy Aunt Beatrice you know, and, uh, and the, the Looney Tune brother-in-law and that kind of stuff, and they want to get into some kind of discussion or whatever uh, around, the, around the Thanksgiving table, uh, what you're going to hear is, well, that's just your opinion. Well, that's just your opinion. That's just the opinion of men. It is not. Some things are. Christians disagree over various things. But what you do is you just turn the Bible around and say, well, tell me, what is he saying here? Uh, yeah, these, these so-called experts on the Bible have seldom ever read it, right? They've just heard about it and they don't want it because they don't want to change their lifestyle. 
and they don't want to hear your speaking about it, so they just write it off as your opinion. That's fine for you, not for me. Well, as Paul said, this is not your opinion. This is actually the very word of God. And, of course, it performs uh, its work in you believe. Can't, can't we say amen to that? I know we're Presbyterian, and we don't say amen. But, but can't you say that the Bible performs its work in you? I mean, it's, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> He's Baptist. <laughs> so now he is. Uh, it's amazing. I, I mean, I, I, this hits me multiple times a week as I'm reading Scripture. I, I just cannot believe how much the Bible has changed me. My very view of life. Uh, uh, decisions you make. How you spend your time. How you spend your money. Your relationships. Everything changes. And sometimes it's really, really hard. I've lost a lot of friends. I lo- now, y'all understand that. But I lost a lot of friends because of Christianity. Not just the other things. Uh, I lost a lot of friends. I, I kind of feel like I started all over again. Because I was born again at age 20. And so it's not always a pleasant change, but that unpleasantness leads to holiness in so many ways. This is the power of the Bible. As, as, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, it's, it, with our church, there, there's a lot of things we don't do right. And uh, we get there. There's a lot of things we would want to do, but we can't do or we won't do or whatever it might be. But, but I got to tell you, there's one thing we're just not willing to compromise on. And it's that we are going to be preaching the truth. We're going to be preaching what the Bible says. And if we don't know exactly what it says, we'll tell you that too. We'll be honest with you. Because we actually have confidence in this book that it will do everything that Peter and Paul says that it will do. That it will actually transform lives. And we are not interested in manipulating you in some kind of way in order to get you to join our church. Because a true believer knows this, and a true believer is hungry for this. They crave truth from Holy Scripture. It's just, uh, it's amazing though how, how here's the Thessalonian church, brand new that it is, without any of the advantages uh, that we even had, that certainly that the Jews had, and yet they are, they are in triumph even in the midst of persecution. They're in triumph in the midst of a war, basically. Thinking about Winston Churchill and triumph and tragedy, he made this assessment uh, in that wonderful work. In the autumn of 1942, at the peak of the struggle for Guadalcanal, only three American aircraft carriers were afloat. A year later, there were 50. By the end of the war, there were more than 100. In three years, our country built 100 aircraft carriers in the midst of war. Now, that's triumph. That's, that is, I have no intention of losing this war. That's a mentality. Why can't the church be like that? Why can't we be living like that? I think one reason why is we don't realize we're in war. We are in war. The same thing that was happening to Thessalonians is happening today in the church of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, so for you, brethren, became imitators of churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Here's another theme with this idea of imitating. Paul t- mentioned earlier that they wanted... 
They should be imitating he, he and the other apostles uh, as they were imitating God. Here he's praising them for imitating their Jewish brothers who were in G Judea. The, the mother church of Jerusalem had many noble daughters. Among them are the Thessalonian churches here. And he, noticed, and he points out this, this, this uh, aspect here that these are all churches of God and that they originate in him and they are in Christ. They are united with him. So it's amazing. Here's this foreign uh, location in Judea that none of these people have probably ever been to with Jerusalem and its Roman soldiers and the Pharisees and this and here's this foreign foreign place and everything and they are the same as the Thessalonians believe the same Christ believe the same word practicing the sacraments in the same way you became imitators of them is what he says here and it's amazing because they're Gentiles they literally grew up worshiping Zeus and Athena and Apollo. Multiple sacrificing to idols. I mean, the Jews could not even conceive of this. Paul brings up this, this truth of their past, the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was their life. And it was dark. Paganism is dark. Living in fear of the gods is dark. And the light came. The light came through the Apostle Paul. And now you've got these Gentiles believing the same thing that the Jews are believing. And they're one united church. And one of the things that Paul's pointing out here is that they are the same because you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. There's some power to common suffering. We all know that, right? We hear somebody has COVID. Oh, yeah, we, we, we know about that COVID. <laughs> and then immediately, oh, I was in bed for three days. I was there, you know. We know. We suffered the same. We understand that. That unites us. So what are some of the things that Paul's pointing out? He said, well, for instance, if you go through the book of Acts, you, just kinda, you can kind of follow this trail of tears through the book of Acts, right? The arrest of the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and 5, the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the scattering of the church after Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8, pursuit of Christ, Christian, uh, uh, Jewish Christians in foreign lands, Acts chapter 8, the death of James, Acts chapter 12, the arrest of Peter, Acts chapter 12, it just goes on and on and on. Then the second part of Acts is more about Paul. Then you see when Paul is being persecuted by, by the Jews and what's going on here. What's interesting is Paul is just laying down about all the suffering that happened in the Judean churches. He kind of didn't mention that he was the cause of a lot of it. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He was the one that was going to foreign cities. Isn't that interesting? He, he is an expert on both suffering persecution and providing persecution. So he's just a great witness uh, for what's going on there. So while he was, but, but he, uh, he's now, of course, being one of the ones, he's now on the other side, he's the one who's receiving persecution. And the Thessalonians were, of course, enduring the same sufferings. And this, of course, goes back to Acts chapter 17. Where Paul's there, according to Paul's custom, I'll pick up here with verse 2. He went to them, the Thessalonians, on three Sabbaths, uh, reasoning with them, the Jews of Thessalonica, uh, the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, all, 
along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So at the synagogue, there were a lot of God-fearing Greeks. They weren't pagan Greeks. They were actually ones who were feared the one God, Yahweh, and they were going to the synagogue because they didn't want to go to the, the temple of Apollo. And, uh, and, and th- th- this was the answer to what they were looking for. Oh, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. goes on to say they took him to court. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason welcomed them, and they uh, acted contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Then they stirred up the crowd in the city and the authorities who heard these things. So, so, so basically... Um, it was what happened there that made Paul have to leave so quickly is st- continuing to go. It's continuing to happen in the church of Thessalonica. And it's almost like after Stephen got stoned and, and uh, all the Jews had to be, uh, uh, all the Christians had to be scattered out and they started, of course, when they, took, they got scattered, they took the gospel with them. But, but, but it's, almost like, it's almost like that scene in Star Wars. Jack's not here. He's going to miss the Star Wars. But you, me- you remember that, that fateful scene uh, I, I, can, I, should have, I should have Googled it before. Implement Order 66. You know, Order 66, when all the Jedi are supposed to be killed by the stormtroopers, they all turn on their Jedi. I've, okay, scratch the whole Star Wars. I've, I've, lost, I've lost you. Uh, but it's like the Jews are doing this. It's like, go after the Christians. Go after the Christians. All synagogues everywhere. Be careful. These people are upsetting the whole world. Go after them. Go after them. And Paul says they were doing it out of jealousy. How sad. And yet, and yet, the Thessalonians, oh, they, they're suffering all these difficulties, both, both the Jews in Thessalonica, but also now some Gentiles have evidently joined. They've suffered. All, they're still triumphant. They're still singing a, a song of triumph. They cannot be defeated because what they've embraced is eternal. And it's true. And it's from God. Again, to quote Triumph and Tragedy, Winston Churchill, I ought to do this in his voice, but then that would probably be as effective as the 66 uh, illustration that I just failed. Uh, He said, he's talking to his people, uh, he said, I should be unworthy of your confidence and generosity if I did not still cry forward, unflinching, unswerving, indomitable till the whole task is done and the whole world is safe and clean. Y'all, there's just no room as difficult as this life is. And I'm preaching to myself now. There's no room for pessimism for the Christian. We will win and we are winning. And that's the case all over the world right now. And frankly, often the more the persecution comes, the more we win. The more triumph that's there. And yet, it's sad because this same word of God had the very opposite effect on so many of the Jews here. And then we pick up here with a tragedy of unbelief in 15 and 16. The Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophets, and drove us out, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So Paul almost gets, he thinks about persecution. He thinks about what's happening, maybe perhaps even recalling some of the things he did. And it's just this sort of abrupt kind of change here when he just starts this lamentable account of the rejection of Messiah by the Jews. I mean, this kind of, this pulls off right for the prologue of the Gospel of John, right? 
He came to his own and his own received him not. Those are some of the saddest lines in all of Holy Scripture here. So he's got this emotional effect here. Remember the Thessalonians persecution begun by the Jews and it kind of catapults them into a diatribe against the unbelieving Jews here. Now, you know what's interesting? Some people have accused Paul of being anti-Semitic. Did you know Paul was a Jew? Okay, I don't know how, I don't know if that's even possible. Of course, these days, races, everybody's racist, right? But, he, but he's not anti-Semitic. He is simply pointing out the facts here. The facts here. And Paul has an emotional attachment to his own people, to his own traditions. It breaks his heart that they're doing this. He doesn't take joy in, 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 uh, in telling them how sinful they are. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was willing to suffer hell himself if somehow he could take the place of all the Jews who were being condemned. So he's not anti-Semitic. He's just pointing out truth. And history bears, uh, bears uh, to, uh, witness to that truth. But the tragedy of, of their unbelief lies in the fact that they had every possible advantage and they squandered it. Romans chapter 9 goes on. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. It was a slam dunk that the Jews would accept Messiah. Slam dump. They had every possible advantage. They had the prophets. They had the customs. They had all the foreshadowing of the sacrifice that this was going to come. And yet they dug their, their heels in. This here, this is a lesson to you young people, to the covenant children, uh, maybe some of the college students here, people who were raised in Christian homes. The, the more you've been blessed with, in a sense, the more you'll be accountable for. And the Jews had every possible advantage and yet rejected that advantage. Let that not be said of the children of this church or other children of other Bible-believing churches. Because, because this is a blessing. I know you think, I've got to sit through that whole service you know, by myself. What am I going to... It is a blessing for you to hear this truth. It is a blessing for you to hear this truth. And it will lead to your salvation. But, but woe to those who reject it and walk out on it. And he says here, to the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, that Paul puts the blame for Jesus' death not on the Romans. He doesn't say those who crucified Jesus Christ. The Romans crucified Jesus Christ. But the Jews, they were the ones who handed Jesus over to the Romans. They had the greater sin. Jesus even points this out when he's before Pilate in John chapter 17. So Pilate said to him, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answers, you have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And it says, Paul sought to make him, to be able to release him, but the Jews would have nothing to do with that. Gordon Fee said, God's own son had been killed by God's own people. And he talks about them killing of the prophets. That could be some of the New Testament prophets already mentioned, James and Stephen. But it also certainly would include the, the, the Hebrew prophets. The, this, we looked at the same verse in the men's Bible study this Thursday in Hebrews 11. Speaking of the prophets and those who came before, others were experienced mockings and scourgings, just also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goat skins, being destitute, affected, ill treatment. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. As Stephen was being stoned, he, uh, he followed up his sermon. This is not the kind of sermon they teach in seminary. But he followed up his sermon with his closing. You men, they, I mean, they're surrounding him with the rocks. I mean, he knows he's going to die. Listen to the courage of Stephen. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your father did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And they killed him because of that. The law ordained by angels. What a gift that was. And yet they didn't keep it. And they not only, they, they, they killed uh, Messiah's uh, messengers because they can't kill Messiah again. They drove him out. Uh, after the murder of Stephen, of course, they came out. Uh, and then it says, they are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to all men. You know, God tells us in the Old Testament, told the Jews in the Old Testament, what he expects uh, in Micah. This is sort of the golden rule of the Old Testament. He has told you, O oh man, I'm Micah 6 eight. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But the Jews were hostile. Notice it says they're hostile to all men. Instead of celebrating the fulfillment of Genesis 12, that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, they hated the nations. Instead of loving justice, kindness, and walk humbly with God, they sought to stamp out the Christian movement. And, uh, and they resisted the power of the Holy Spirit constantly. It goes on to say they were hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may save. Again, Paul, Paul implies there's the jealousy here. I, I, I guess what happened, you know, here's the synagogue service. And all of a sudden, these people started being Christians. And these Christians started having joy. And they've never seen worship that was that uh, enlivened, that powerful before. And they became jealous of this new wonderful worship. Now, they should have joined it, but instead they tried to shut it down because of their jealousy. It, 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 looked, like, uh, it looked like a better product, <laughs> if you could put it that way, and they were upset with it. So the persecution that they, they, they pursued with the Thessalonians was pretty typical of what happened where, wherever Paul went. Uh, Acts chapter 13 says, As Paul and Barnabas were going, and the people kept begging these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And he quotes this idea of Genesis chapter 12. For so the Lord has commanded, I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading. But the Jews incited devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust off their feet and protest against them and went to Iconum. And disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
You know, it's interesting, if you look at a map of the ancient Middle East, there's something called the Fertile Crescent. It goes from Babylon down to Egypt, kind of shaped like a crescent. Uh, and there's, it's more green on the map. It's, it's, it's fertile, and you can plant things there. And where did God put Israel? Right in the middle. Right on the roads between Assyria, Greece, Babylon, and Egypt, and Libya, and all the other places of North Africa. Right in the middle. Right in the middle there, in order for them to be a light to the nations. But what they did instead was curse the darkness and hate the nations. And Paul is just, just is so broken over this. Obviously, some came to know the Lord, but, but as a people, they generally re rejected. And he says, and the result is that they're always filling up their measure of their sins. You know, there's a, uh, if you go back to Genesis, you remember when Paul's talk, Paul, uh, God is talking to Abraham and he's talking about the future of the Israelite coming back in to take over Canaan. And, and he says that it's not time yet because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. There's evidently a time frame for God where people have sinned to the utmost and it's time for judgment. That seems to be what Paul's saying here, that they're always filling up to the measure of their sins. And that there's going to be a time when that's just not going to be allowed anymore. I remember, many of us remember the Davis family. They, they had a seed processing plant in North Georgia. And I would go visit them sometimes, and you would walk into these, these giant warehouses. They had silos and everything. And you would see sunflower seeds heaped uh, two, three stories high. Just heaped seeds, just heaped on. People would bring in seeds, and they would just heap on these seeds. Heap on. That's, that's kind of the image here of, 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 of Israel just heaping the sins on, the rejection. One prophet after another, one apostle after another, one family run out of town after another, just keeps heaping and heaping and heaping and heaping so that wrath will come upon them on the utmost. It's interesting. He's actually speaking in the aorist tense. This is, again, this book was written probably about 50 A.D. What was the wrath that came 20 years later? Yeah, they burned Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Uh, they, they put down the revolt with pro profound bloodshed to the point they said that there were so many men that were crucified that there was no wood left in Judea. They just used it all to crucify the men. So God's wrath came, and Paul's actually, and perhaps it's prophetic because he is a prophet, perhaps he's looking to that future and said, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, but he's also, this is also a picture of the damnation of people who resist the church. Eventually that wrath is going to come. So the, these, these, uh, th this future damnation is going to be coming. So anyway, the, the gospel brought life to the Gentile Thessalonians. They had triumph when they believed, but it brings judgment and wrath upon the Judean Jews because of their unbelief. And, and, it, and, and it really is, comes down to this. Do you believe in the word of God? Do you believe in the word of God? Does it go from your mind to your heart? Is it something you're willing to stake your life on? We should all be like John Wesley who said, Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me that book, God. It was a triumph for the, uh, for the Thessalonians. It was a tragedy for the others. And, but it, it's a good reminder for us. We are at war. We're at war right now. And we are winning. We have won. And we will win in the end. Even if we die fighting the battle. We win. That actually is better in many ways. I mean, you know, our catechism question this morning spoke to that particular purpose. 
And just to close with a thought from Winston Churchill and Triumph and Tragedy that kind of parallels this war that we're in. The Second World War had indeed been fought to the bitter end in Europe. The vanquished as well as the victors felt inexpressible relief. But for us in Britain and the British Empire, who had alone been in the struggle from the first day to the last and staked our existence on the result, there was a meaning beyond what even our most powerful and most valiant allies could feel. Weary and worn, impoverished but undaunted, and now triumphant. We had a moment that was sublime. We give thanks to God for the noblest of all his blessings and the sense that we had done our duty. That's our call. We're to be Thessalonians. We're not to be like those who reject the word of God. And triumph will be our song. Father, I pray that you would help us to apply these truths to our hearts. We are so confused, so distracted so often. Uh, we don't realize the militant nature of the spiritual battle that we're in. We become complacent. Our weapons have become rusty. I pray that you would wake us up. Let us hear the bugle call. Help us to do our duty and to delight to serve our King in triumph. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.